Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean O-Line Media presents Black Arm of the Law. So welcome to Black Arm of the Law podcast, where each week we examine the most pressing issues in the criminal legal system. I'm your host, Dr. Rochelle Brackney, also known as Chief B. As we settle on today's show, don't forget to subscribe, to download, follow, comment, rate on Twitter, Spotify, iHeart, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, basically wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. So we're going to let's jump right into this. My guests today are two phenomenal persons who were thrust into the spotlight um, without asking for it. They didn't step into it voluntarily. The nation and the globe forced them into this space. I have with me today Uncle Selwyn Jones and Liz Darden. Let me tell you a little bit about Uncle Selwyn. On May 25th, 2020, his nephew, George Floyd Jr., was executed, publicly executed, um, with a video that went nine minutes and 29 seconds. And as a result of that, this entire family, the entire world was turned over and got an ugly look into the criminal legal system, particularly policing in Minneapolis. Um, Uncle Selwyn, Liz, I just want to welcome you to the show. Thank you, Sister uh, Rochelle. You have been an inspiration to me and plenty of warriors I were having this fight. Uh, I remember a year ago, dear, when this first started on my show, first guest, so guess what? I love returning the favor. I'm sorry it took me so long to respond, you know, but uh, somebody I know didn't check my messages and, you know, oh, so I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, right out of the Yes, we are excited to be here. Thank you for having us. And we're going to get to that. We are going to get to your podcast, Setting It Straight. Um, well, so we're going to get to that. We're also going to get to um, what you, how you've turned your pain into purpose. Um for your entire family. And we're going to talk about it at one point, Hope 929. Um, and, and we're going to jump right into all of that. Got a lot of things. Got a lot of things. So let's talk about that day. I mean, this is a day, May 25th, 2020, that is indelible in, in all of our memories across the nation and across the globe. I mean, it sparked an outrage um, and a movement, a moment that turned into a movement that I have never seen before in my more than 38 years and policing and law enforcement. Walk me through how that first, I mean, like that first phone call and then how that has changed your family and your even your family dynamics from that point forward. May the 25th, I was actually playing softball at a park in Gettysburg, South Dakota. So it wasn't me. I didn't find out on May the 25th, but I woke up uh, Tuesday. I mean, I woke up on the 26th. And I get up and I'm looking at, you know, I'm getting my babies ready for school. And uh, I look on television and once again, you know, I just seen Ahmaud Arbery. I just seen Breonna Taylor. And I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, I'm in South Dakota. Whenever I see a person of color getting put in a bad situation by authorities or anybody, you know, I'm old school. And I'm thinking, oh my God, man, why are they doing this to another black guy? You know, why are they doing this to another brother? And I look in the doorway, and my mother-in-law is like, somebody stole her best friend, God bless her soul. And my wife is sitting in the chair, she's looking at me. I'm thinking, hey, man, what's wrong with y'all? No. And, I, and I'm looking at the television, and, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, this stuff has to stop, man. My sister calls me, and my sister says, you see what? I held the phone up. And that guy that I was looking at, praying for, wishing for, hoping for, he could exit that particular situation that I'm looking at. My big sister's baby boy. And Rashawn, 
it was like it was yesterday. When you grow up with somebody, when you love somebody, when you have good hopes and dreams and wishes and thoughts for somebody, I just saw him two weeks earlier, and you see him lying on the street in between a police car and a crew, and you see people holding him and with the knee on the neck. I'm feeling that same feeling that I felt at and it was like this total disbelief, total disgust, shame that we live in that world. Somebody do another human being like that. That human being was my big sister's baby boy. He went from laughing, talking, begging, crying, and dying. All right before, I don't know, having a big in people's eyes. My heart left me. Uh, soul left me. I never got angry. I was sad. Look, see somebody die is one thing. See one of your favorite people lay there, knowing what was going through his brain. I had to wait to die. So it was crushing in many, many, many ways. It was. Uh, every time I think about it, it brings me back to this point. It brings me back to this place. Just walking to be that uncle and want to help, you know. Just say, hey man, it'll be okay. And uh, it wasn't okay. It will never be okay. But it's given me an opportunity to make a big difference in this world in a very impactful way because of how people related and responded to that particular situation there. That's the reason why I'm here with you, my dear. Uh, you're one of those responders. You're one of those warriors. You're one of those people that have seen these things a plethora of times. Besides, and I've seen it a plethora of times. The difference between this time, it was my big sister, baby boy, and no one called her there. Just listening to you, and, and I know, you know, our audience can't see us, but we, through the video, um, the pain is still very real. And actually, um, I feel myself welling up about the lack of humanity that was shown for your nephew, right? You say your big sister's baby boy, but this is your nephew, right? And in, in black community, you know, nieces, nephews, cousins, um, uncles, those relationships, those familiar relationships are very close. You know, we don't distinguish. I've got nieces and nephews who, you know, I shouldn't be saying this on a podcast, but I'm riding and dying for those nieces and nephews. Like those are my, like my children. And before I had a daughter, um, and I know you have two young children, as a matter of fact, before I had a daughter, my nieces and nephews were my surrogate children. Um, I knew where they were, what they were doing, what they needed. And Aunt Shell was like, in there, right, for lots of years before my daughter came along. I can imagine that's what yours was like. Charles, when you're the baby of 17 kids, most of my nieces and nephews are within 10 years older, 10 years younger, and he was eight years younger. So, you know, I've had had a lot of little brothers and sisters, you know, and uh, there's very few people in life have a connection like me and you. Very few people in life that have a connection like me and Liz. I talked to you, you emailed me, I emailed you and we talked and it seemed like I was talking to my sister. And every time I talk to you, I can hear that in your voice. How are you doing, brother? How you doing, sis? And whenever I saw George, it was, what's up, uh? He'd pick me up and he'd shake me around in Uncle Georgeson's, out a little rigger because of all the football. And I'd be like, put me down. He's like, no, nah, man, I'm getting back from when I was a little kid. He used to throw me down and stuff like that. And it's just something just to see a smile. He always had that smile. You know, it's like a a, 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 moonlit, a moonlit sky when the stars is out. Always bright. And him coming in the room and six foot saying, hey, what's up, man? What's up, ugly? What's up, big head? And things like that, you know, uh, you'll never forget. And you'll always remember 
I have a text on my phone that says happy birthday on my birthday was three days before he got murdered. And I was busy uh, being Uncle Sheldon, uh, being daddy, being motel owner, being businessman. And I didn't see that text until the 26th or 7th. I looked at my phone, started checking my messages on my phone. And he texted me, happy birthday. And, you know, I'm late for no one. You never know what day it is. You know, you can't hold it. You can't wait it. You can't uh, save it for later. So that put a, a different thought process in my brain. You know, and I've always been sort of kind of a certain way. But if I care for you, which, you know, obviously now at this point in our life, our circles are really small. But if I care for you, the last thing I will tell you before I leave you or hang up the phone, and I'm sure you're like, what are you talking about, fool? I love you. Because uh, that was one of those things, man, that I don't ever get that opportunity again because somebody decided on May the 25th that they would take indecent liberties to take his life because of the color of his skin. Because of power and control issue, because of miseducation, because of conduct uh, disorder. But, you know, man, it's one of those things that I will, I am trying, me and Liz are trying to create a George Floyd Forever Day. Because this will not, Liz will not understand this, Sister uh, B. She don't remember when the space shuttle blew up because she wasn't born. <laughs> she may remember when night when uh, uh when Desert Storm happened. That was ninety two, so she was about three. Uh, we remember when nine eleven happened. She was what nine ten years old. Oh, and you'll always remember the day that George Floyd died, and that was the day that changed a lot of dynamics in our society and in our world. So with that, Liz, let me have you build on something that Uncle Selwyn said. He said, George laid there waiting to die, waiting to die. Uh, we all heard him begging um, for his life, begging for his mother. I can't even imagine um, his mom hearing those words. I mean, I, I, I react as soon as my 30-year-old calls me and she says something and and she says, mom, and I know right away something's wrong, right? Like I know intuitively. I can't even imagine having to, to, to have my child begging for their lives. And, you know, we saw with Tyree Nichols calling for his mom for help and, and feeling like there's nothing you could do to save your child. As he was laying there, you know, waiting to die, though, you all have taken that waiting to die and changed it to um, hope. So Liz, if you could talk about changing those desperate situations and, and how did you get with Uncle Selwyn and um, Hope 929? I mean, you know, he's from South Dakota. Um, none of us, I don't even know any black folks in South Dakota except Uncle Selwyn. Um, so you can you walk me through what that, that connection is and how you two got together and how that waiting to die and that pain has been turned into purpose? Yes, I think it's super important to turn pain into power. And seeing that event occur, he, living here in Harrison, Arkansas, as a mother, I couldn't sit there and watch the whole thing unfold. I saw what I saw in the news highlights was enough. It made me mad. I'm a mother raising black children in a community that's known as the most racist town in the nation. I moved here 12 years ago. I was born and raised in a very diverse community of Anchorage, Alaska, and I had a fear because I heard that the headquarters of the KKK was 10 miles from my house. But instead of living in fear, I chose to become an educator, become involved with the community task force on race relations, where I would coordinate events for the community. We partnered up with the Martin Luther King Jr. Commission, and it was that event, the Unity in the Community event, what was it, two and a half years ago? Or is it three years now? Two years ago, Uncle Solo? Three years ago. Two years ago. And I won an award for organizing the event as a volunteer. And I got up and I spoke. And I was saying something like, what seems so black and white comes from a history of rectifying fights. 
how will there ever be racial reconciliation when intolerable treatment continues to occur across the nation? And I just went on and stated my stance as a mother raising black children in this community where unfortunately it's been falsely labeled. It is not the most racist town in the nation. There's racism wherever you go in this world. And the people here have faced that stigma head on for many years and are countering it or doing, they're working tirelessly to, to stomp that negative narrative. And I remember getting off that stage, Uncle Selen was standing there and I gave him a fist bump and it was just like this magnetic force because at that point I already knew who he was and it just, it felt, I just felt something happen that changed the trajectory of my life. I was an educator and just this last spring, I put my resignation in to go full time because of that day, I connected with him a week later he introduced me to family members who had been impacted by police brutality across the country. And I heard their stories and it pulled my heartstrings. And I was like, we've got to do something. What can we do? You know, there's a lot of organizations out there who are establishing things to help um, reform police departments. And, and yes, that is very important. But what's going to set us apart? How are we going to give them tools? You know, they're all facing the same injustice. They're all having to conduct their own investigation and what can we do? So we it started like an empowerment group. You know, we're getting to know their stories. We're wanting to lift their voices. So we started setting it straight with sewing where we wanted to highlight and raise awareness to their cases because, you know, fortunately, Darnella Frazier was there filming George Floyd being murdered. And had she not been there, would we be here talking? I don't think so. Uh, so we wanted to establish that. That empowerment group evolved into, okay, we need to provide tools. We need to implement solutions. We need to do more than just talk about the problems. So we established Hope 929 with a vision to help historically marginalized groups and give communities tools to become more equitable um, and more self-sufficient and give people hands up in society. So we have four focus areas in our company. It's within public safety, where we partnered up with organizations that we create positive social bridges from the police department to the citizens. We have the education components where we help uh, with workshops to allow students to um, overcome their fears in public speaking and, and be involved within our events. And then we have the economic development community building. Right now we are so blessed, you know, this past summer we worked on a grant proposal and we just got slated for funds to incorporate uh, affordable housing complex, community resource center, a 50-person call center to provide jobs. And it, it's just pretty much like a one-stop shop. And we're establishing it right here in Harrison, Arkansas, where where I met Uncle Selwyn. You know, that day, I think, changed his life and my life because it's the most unlikely of business partners <laughs> you would expect to see. But because of the efforts and the community involvement, I'm now sitting on city council and helping to make changes and be a soundboard to the community, but it's been an honor and a privilege because it, I wake up with purpose to help the future generations to come and make this world a better place and being alongside Uncle Selwyn and going on this journey when we have a worldwide platform to speak about these uncomfortable situations, but we're, we're coming with solutions. So that's a little bit about hope. Yeah, and not only um, are these are you coming with solutions and unlikely alliances, um, you know me. I'm a former police chief in Charlottesville, Virginia. A former police chief at George Washington University. I retired after 31 years of the city of Pittsburgh, and actually, it was Uncle Selwyn who reached out to me um, and said, "Hey, I see you. I hear your story." And at first, I thought he was one of these stalker types. Cause you know, I get occasionally one of those and they say, oh, they're George Floyd's uncle. And I'm like, oh, sure. Right. And, but he, he instant messaged me on LinkedIn and said, I see you, I see you. Um, and you know, very often when you're in these difficult situations, people don't see you, right. They see through you, um, to their next thing or their next event. And I was struck by that. Um, and so an unlikely alliance that he would be willing to partner with somebody like me um, who's been in policing their entire, almost, you know, literally three quarters of their life, um, not giving away our complete ages here, but yeah, 
we 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 know we're definitely older than than Liz, right? Nineteen sixties <laughs> was a good time for wine. Sixty-seven was a good time for rail for our railroad and sale, as Liz would say. People out there, that's how you said. I always tell people, uh, if you didn't have a heart, you didn't care. You had a heart, your heart broke when you saw George Perry Floyd getting uh, taken advantage of and humiliated and ashamed and consequently murdered on that particular day. And people always ask me, and my sister, he bellowed, bellowed for his mother when he knew that I loved about her. I just had this belief in my mind. My sister stuck her hands out. It's, Come on, baby. Whenever a mama goes to console a child, hey, mama. And my sister reached down with her hands and said, Mama, because my sister died a year before him. So, you know, I think it was, I think in my mind and his mind, all of that fight and that struggle and stress, and then it comes to a point where she waited. 8.23, 15 seconds, my sister took him where? And he went to go see grandmama and his daddy and his grandma. Now they all sit up there now and say, boy, that crazy uncle and mom. My mom is just really having a ball with this. He needs to stop asking people about catfish when he's on television. Or he's on a podcast, you know? But I use that inspiration that he that she gave me, and a lot of people won't look at it this way. A lot of people will say, "Man, well, he was high. Uh, he had rocks in his chin and rocks in his shoulder, where he was trying to get himself up so he could leave. He didn't want to die. He didn't want to leave here. But you come here with a day to leave. Can't prolong it. Can't shorten it. Can't do anything but go in time. And Time came to an end on a particular day, at a particular time. Boy, think about this. Crazy uncle was asked to go to the so-called most racist place in the world. And we saw, I said, where do I land? Where do I land? Is that the craziest thing you've ever heard? Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Amen. Um, you know, our studio audience, I don't know about my protection, production team in the back, but there's not a dry eye on this side of the, of the interview because the first thing I think of is, is a mom reaching out and saying, come here, I'll comfort you. Um, and as a result of even that imagery, talk to me about the medical civil rights bill, right? That says, because again, you know, a mother reaching to comfort their child after they've fallen or scraped their knee, as we always give the example, or scrape their hands or whatever, we, we give them attention, right? We meet their physical needs. George needed attention right away, right? Right away. And he didn't get that, did not. Talk to me about the medical civil rights bill and what that would mean to you all. And what we're going to talk about next, the, the forget the, the, because the medical civil rights bill is smaller portion of what we would want for the Justice and George Floyd and Policing Act that has failed miserably over and over again in the Senate, held up specifically by a black man, right? So let's talk about the medical civil rights bill and then the Justice and George Floyd and Policing Act. As you get one, I get the other. Okay. Well, the medical civil rights bill, we have a unique story with the drafters of the bill. Dr. Robert DeLui drafted this bill in 2015 with his daughter, Leonor. He was a humanitarian, a doctor. He discovered a gene to cure a disease. He dedicated his life to serving commun disempowered communities uh, a couple days a week who didn't have insurance and came up with this bill with the physician's committee Harvard graduates and just saw the need to establish this bill. This bill would allow all citizens the right to request medical assistance while encountering police officers. This bill would save countless lives. And we got involved with the drafters 
three days before Dr. Robert DeLuey passed away. Can I, in the hospital. can I get this part? Yes, you can. Go for it. On May the 22nd, 2021, I'm going to live on the phone. And I get this call, and this young lady calls, and I still can't pronounce her name properly, so I call her Miss L. She said, hello, is this Uncle Selwyn? I was like, yeah, this would be Uncle Selwyn with you. I don't know no bills, so why are you calling me on a strange number? You know? And she said, hi, I'm Leonora DeLouis, and this is what I'm doing. Me and my dad come up with meal that would preserve life in police custody, whether it was the all cop or security guard or the a guard at college, any interaction with a police officer. And when you bail her, I'm sick or I'm hurt or I can't breathe or my hair, they have to stop immediately and assist you with medical attention. And me and my dad have been doing this. A lot of people mistaken that her and her dad started this when George died. No, it's five years. This was before Eric Gardner died. And she's talking to me and I'm like, wow, man, I didn't know that. I didn't know that there police officer can come in contact with you and kill you and have no other repercussions from it. And, you know, when she's talking, I'm like, where's your dad at? She's like, I'm in the hospital right now. My dad is dying. And I, I didn't even see him. I'm like, well, why don't you go see him? I was going to talk. Yes, I do. He's on this last day. And I'm like, take the phone in there, girl. All right, I'm Russia. Hey, young man, how are you doing? It's something selling. And, you know, we ch I chatted to him for about, about two minutes. I'm like, man, you got to get up because we got that. You know where I'm going, Groshaw. We got to have that catfish dinner. She's like, oh, my God, my daddy is. I haven't seen him laugh or react to anything in months. And we had a pretty pleasant time. Communicating with him. The last words I tell him, he better get it blown up because we're going to go dancing at the best catfish place in Connecticut when I get there. I'm on my way. We go to New York. This is on my birthday. We get in New York on the 25th and we're sitting in the apartment and she calls me and she says, Uncle Selwyn, I have something to tell you. What's that, my dear? Our pop store. My dad died with a great man's voice in his ears. He died. Same day that George died in year. I was the last person that he talked to. So, now there's another tearjerker, man. <laughs> I've been in a lot of those, man, you know? And I just sat there, and I realized in this battle and in this fight, certain people that you come in contact with, that you believe, hey, you were born to me. You were destined to me. I was destined to meet you, Sister Bright. I was destined to meet Liz to help continue my progress of making a difference. And it was my destiny to meet a man that has never had any bad situation probably occurred to him in his life that had no skin in the game. That was trying to preserve life for our people and all people. Such a simple but stole tragic situation that he could make better by his belief and his wants to make a better world. So, you know, me and all we chat all the time. Jump into this other one. The George Floyd Police and that was promised a lot of things. And I, myself, will never believe it or ever get past because it would have to be completely watered down to the point it would be worth the paper that it was printed on. And, uh, I'm not supposed to say this, Rochelle, but you know this because you've been in this business for 40 years. This is going to be mad at me, so people on podcast land, my boss, agent, partner, uh, right-hand person will be mad at me. Rochelle, there's no money in people not dying. Yeah, you know what? I mean, here's here's what's so interesting about this. So last last um, week, the Congressional Black Caucus was in session and there was a panel discussion um, about uh, the Hip Hop Caucus 
We're specifically talking about in-custody deaths. We don't know today how many people die in police custody. And what I mean in jail, in custody, when they interacted with them, in detention cells, et cetera. And Dr. Anthony Mitchell, who is the pathologist, the um, forensic pathologist that is um, working with the Kaepernick Foundation, Colin Kaepernick's foundation, and does the secondary autopsies, you know, because we can't believe the medical examiners when these events occur. We can't believe them. So they get a secondary autopsy and says, you know what? It was an excited delirium. They weren't oh, on cocaine. Oh, oh, don't start on me with that. Do not start on me with that. And I did a, 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 a interview with the BBC. And the whole conversation was about excited delirium, which is a phrase used to let the police off for killing somebody because they were angry. How in the world does that even come into process? So, so, so here's what they're pushing for, right? And again, to your point about how watered down the bill is, they want something as simple as when a person dies in custody, regardless of what the death certificate says or the reason for the death, that you just add a box that checks in custody death so that we can start correlating this and uh, collecting this data. And they can't get that kind of thing done. And this is a high functioning foundation, similar to yours, um, where we can't even get the data. And because at least if we have the data, People can make an informed decision about what trends and patterns look like versus they get to tell the story and then you fight the narrative from that point forward. There, we talked to a young lady, Memphis, Tennessee, and her thought process from her facts, she's at about 10 to 12,000 people that died in custody, whether it's in jail, in a prison, police shootings, on the way to jail, while you're coming counter, and oh my God, sweet, so you know, death by death by police officers for traffic stops are somewhere between the nineteen hundred and twenty-one. That's correct. That means that there's three times the people that get murdered in in uh, while in custody of police officers, security here. The system's broke. The people are broke that are running the system. Nicholas Gilbert was the individual who they said committed suicide while in custody. And he there was blood everywhere. He was beat up. And there's no way in heck that he committed suicide. And if I'm correct, the, the, the original uh, medical examiner went from suicide to unknown for his death. Like... Or, or vice versa, once people started bringing that in. So, a bone out of his neck. His collarbone. If, yeah. Whenever you, you're, whenever you hang yourself, that's a bone that breaks that cuts off your airflow. They, they had surgery on him and removed that bone so they wouldn't know that he was murdered or they hung him. So, here's what is also insane. And, and Liz and then um, Uncle Selwyn, if you can both talk to this. Um, Liz, if you can address this first. Because you've been on this advocacy road and really shining a light on, on the system that Uncle Selwyn says is broken, which I argue is functioning perfectly well based on design, but it is broken in terms of a system in which um, we subject our citizenry to in terms of policing, right? The whole criminal legal institution. This hasn't been easy for you all. I mean, you face harassment, you've had threats, there's been Confederate flag stuff. Can you talk to me about some of the intentional targeting now that is on your backs for bringing these kind of systemic issues to light? I know that it has happened to Uncle Selwyn in um, South Dakota around the Confederate patches he wanted removed from the local police department on their their patches had Confederate flags on it, and he moved to have that removed. There's monuments all over Gettysburg, South Dakota. I don't even know how you get to a Gettysburg, South Dakota when it 
Gettysburg wasn't even close and they wouldn't have been involved in a civil war, but go, go for it. Can you talk to me about what happens when you take on this fight? When you take on this fight, you are already propelled in a direction to accept the criticism that's going to be thrown at you. You know, you have to look past it. And I think it's, you have to walk with strategy. You say this system was built with strategy and it's successfully being implemented. But like you mentioned earlier, you see there's lack of data and you're having to go along this path of resilience. You have, you have to go with the strength that no matter what is throwing at you, you're, you've got to just be prepared for it. And with uncle Selwyn, you know, he was targeted as soon, especially with the death of his nephew, he was targeted because of the fact, you know, you saw a lot of people coming together post the week post following George's murder. You saw a lot of people coming together, but you also saw a lot of people deride and countering instead of black lives matter, all lives matter, countering the movement in the direction that was a cry for help. The Black Lives Matter movement, it was a cry for help. This has got to stop. For centuries, Black people have been at the end of the barrel. And we've gone through this in the 60s. You're seeing the same issues. Actually, since the murder of George, you see more deaths occurring while in police custody. And I have to do everything I can in my power to make this world a better place for my children. At what point do our children stop being seen as cute and start being seen as a threat? We have to be able to face and address and discuss and meet people where they are. That's my strategy. You you have to meet people where they are, especially living in a town like this where I'm raising Black children. There's a reason why people have a belief that they do, but how can we find a common ground? And You're right, and no one's immune to this, and Uncle Selwyn, I'm going to have you address that. Patrice Cullors just recently did an interview in January of 2023. Patrice Cullors is one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, right? Um, her nephew, as a matter of fact, Keenan Anderson was killed by police in custody and possibly in the middle of a mental health crisis, had called for police. He's literally saying, I need to be seen. I, you know, I've got my hands up. I just need people to see me. So he's moving towards traffic. As a result of it, they, they kill him. He dies in custody videotaping that we get the body worn camera. So no one's immune to this. Um, and you're right. People don't care. You're, when do we turn from being cute um, children to uh, when our skin is weaponized? You know, Uncle Selwyn, I know you've been targeted, um, particularly after you took on this fight and the fights around the Confederate flags on the local police department's patches that they wore on their patch, like the protecting servers on one hand and the the, the Confederate flag is on the other. Um, are you comfortable speaking about that journey and, and, and the safety issues and, and what that may have been and still costing you and your family today? I am I am absolutely fine with speaking about it, dear, because I personally don't give a hoot. It's not my job to care what that person says because listen at me good. I cast people. Eagles fly higher than any bird in the world. You let the crows fall off. And all of these people are crows to me. If you don't feel what I'm saying, don't listen. Because I'm not going to stop. Because we haven't had nobody to fight. And to be a world changer and to make a difference. And to have an impact. And a long, long, long time. And all I'm trying to do is take the place of greats before me. And make a difference. James Elliott says. Now I always come back to this little skit she use, uses. And she said, who would like to be lynched, beat, hung, whipped, sat in the back of the bus, uh, have to go to the back to eat, and just being disgusted and humiliated? Now, if you would like to be that person, please raise your hand. Like, if you didn't understand me, would you please raise your hand? If you, if any of you would like to change for being a black American. Nobody ever raises their hand. When I did do that speech, nobody raises their hand. So what I'm telling you is people have made it okay to treat us like we're nothing. And unless we stand and, and, and make a difference, communication, conversation, motivation, education, and a lot of things will change, Ms. Rashaw. 
But when people like me and you are at this every day trying to make a difference, I don't care. You know, I come from North Carolina. I've got people with Confederate flag couches. But if you live north of the Mason-Dixon line, that's hay heritage. And Germany, the swastika sticker is legal. If you don it, you go to jail. So there's all people are not bad. All police officers are not bad. But that 1% that is, make their impact. Those people that were on that line, as Liz spoke, you were on the line and you turned right and left. And those people that went to the left side or the right side or whichever you want to call the bad side, the black side, that's saying that. That's what people say. You know, the black, black is bad. Well, whoever that went to the other side, shame on you. Shame on you if you think that you are a better human being because of the house you live in and the car that you drive or the address on your mailbox and because of the color of your skin. Shame on you. Because we all come here for just a short period of time, my dear. Why not make this a better place? Why will we leave them before we came in? Because it's been ugly for a minute. It's been ugly for a long time. You know, so we have got to overcome and make a difference, dear. And like I said, if it's my day, can't speed it, you can't slow it, you can't borrow time. But that means that I've got to make some impact and make a difference before that day comes. Because there's a lot of mean hate for people in this world, Rashad. And, uh, you know, you've been in this business. People have been, people been calling your name for many, many, many years. And they've been calling my name for another last year and a half really bad. And as we go, they're going to call my name a lot. Because I'm not stopping all day, every day. So can we ask you the same question regarding being targeted? Can we turn that just out of curiosity? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Every, every, you know, if, when we talk about this, um, this is a perfect segue. I'm going to just talk to you about this and then tell you how it, it, it happens. Recently, the DOJ came out with a report on Minneapolis. Uh-huh. And it said particularly, Merrick Garland comes out and says, the patterns and practices we observed particularly he's referring to what Minneapolis and George Floyd, the patterns and practices we observe made what happened to George Floyd possible. Mm-hmm. That speaks to the kind of harassment you receive from your police departments, the type I've received, the death threats I received from my own officers, right? The emails I get, the text messages I get, um, wishing for my death, wishing for painful death for me. Um, Question, sister. Have you ever had somebody right on side of the building that next door to your building, F off N-I-G-G-E-R, that's probably five foot from your property? Have you have, have, have that ever happened to you? No. They, I mean, they're they're much bolder. I mean, they they'll email me anonymously, right? Referring to my ethnicity, referring to my race, particularly the fact that I'm multi-ethnic, um, biracial, who identify as black. As everybody knows, you got a you got a black mama, and and in Liz's case, she raising them babies. Like she they she understands what that means to have black children who are multi ethnic who present as black. The scary part is that what is occurring in these departments allow for the type of harassment to be okay. To be okay, and it it occurred in Charlottesville, you know, where I was the chief and was you know, threatened my old officers to kill me and let God sort it out. And they're like, oh, that's okay. Um, to threaten other officers, you know, that they thought were snitches or they thought were going along with my reform programs who made comments like, hey, we'll just wait her out. And, and effectively they did. They they got their unions together. They got their um, white allies and, and, and black allies um, because there are people who look like us who benefit from the system and the structure in place. So... Um, they didn't want to lose their job. They didn't want to lose their security. They didn't want to lose the car they got. And and I'll be real, I hate people like that. I hate people that choose money, possessions, over rights. You're right. You're right. It's okay for me to not that uh, to uh, to, uh, to light Rashal because I might lose my job, but. Me being a black person don't matter and it does matter it does matter it does matter 
where are we coming from? A place that one, two percent of the world's population come from. And, you know, and that's one of the problems that we have as a race. It is hard for another brother or another sister to thumbs up another sister or brother when they're doing great things. Seems like that's alien. Something bad happen if you get somebody to thumbs up for doing great. So, you know, like I said, Ralph, none of it matters to me because I got two little babies that I've got to make a difference for in this world and make a better place. Liz has got three little babies. You got some grandbabies. Oh, I ain't got no grandbabies. Don't be giving me that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Black Lives Matter, yes, because we are black, the tans. White lives matter because they've got babies, they've got lives. All lives matter, man. And, well, well, you ain't got no grandbabies yet? Well, you look like you're about 35, so I'm just saying it, it, that you're playing the part time. <laughs> so I'm going to end this on a high note. I'm going to end this on a high note. Liz, um, if you can take this one first from the Uncle Selwyn. So you have Hope 929. Um, Liz, what does Hope look like for you in five years? Hope looks like a place where we can voluntarily put our strong beliefs and viewpoints to the side sometimes just to try to see to a person's center, see to a person's heart. Just because they have a, a belief that's different from yours I think it's important to just be able to just see them for who they are as a whole and not push them to the side because they look a certain way, not push them to the side because they feel a certain way. That's what hope looks like to me. Hope looks like to me that groups are coming together. Those who've been disempowered for too long have the same opportunities to those who have been in power their whole life. We need to equal the playing field out. We need to equal the playing field out. And that's that's what we're doing with Hope 929. And anyone out there that wants to follow our journey, they can go to hope929.org. Push that button. Push that button. <laughs> they can go to hope929.org. And we do need to update our website with some of the recent projects we're working on. But I'm telling you, we're, we're, we're having an impact. And it's just a beautiful thing to see, you know, allowing people to wake up with purpose, allowing people to put their past behind them that want a second chance overcome and moving forward together. That's what Hope Lights looks like to me. Uncle Selwyn, I'm allow you to do the last word so you can set it straight with Uncle Selwyn. Like, what does Hope look like for you in the next five years? Freedom, quality, and justice for all. That's all I can wish for. That's all I can shoot for. That's all I can work for. Oh, Rackman, you are one of my heroes. You are one of my Dearest, dearest, dearest friends, and you are a general in this war of advocating for justice and equality and racism. You are a idol and a hero to all young girls, young ladies, young men. So I am proud to say this is a wrap, and I love you. You can't end my show for <laughs> Hey, you messed up. You messed up my PowerPoint. I'm finna go for sure. You Look messed up my PowerPoint. Right, 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 and it. I was going to say, and I was going to say, this is a wrap because this is what sisters and brothers do. And I was going to give it back. So, you know what? I just want to thank you. A shout out to my guest, Uncle Selwyn Jones, who is the uncle of George Floyd Jr., council person mother, advocate, CEO, co-founder of Hope 929, Liz Darden. Thank you for being here today. Oftentimes we're, we're asked to, to reflect on these conversations that we have with individuals. And, and the one I just had with Uncle Selwyn, who is the uncle, the uncle of George Floyd Jr., left me um, shook, hopeful, saddened, um, a wide range of emotions. And if Uncle Selwyn and his family can continue to do this work, there is a call for each of us to continue the fight for criminal justice reform. And this isn't a new call. 
And I know we're exhausted. I know we're tired. I know social justice reform um, is, is work that just wears at our soul. But I would just say this for Martin Luther King Jr. There is such a thing as the freedom of exhaustion. Some people are so worn down by the yoke of oppression that they give up. The oppressed must never allow the conscious of the oppressor to slumber. To accept injustice or segregation passively is to say to the oppressor that his actions are morally right. The actions are morally right. We can never let Minneapolis, St. Louis, Memphis, we can never let George Floyd Jr., Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, Sandra Bland, we can never let their oppressors think that their actions are morally right. Come back next week into our audience. Thank you for listening. Please tell someone about the show. Don't forget to subscribe, follow, rate, and comment. We're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This is the end of my shift. I am 1042. I will catch you next week. The Black Arm of the Law podcast is hosted by Rashal Brackney Wheelock. Executive producers Ken Johnson, Steve Tompkins, and Rashal Brackney Wheelock. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Spotify, the Mean Old Line Media app, or where you get your podcast. Follow Black Arm of the Law at BLK Arm of the Law on IG and X. Follow the Mean Old Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean Old Line Media. Get the Mean Old Line Media app in the App Store and Google Play for more great podcasts. The Black Arm of the Law Podcast is a Mean Old Line Media production. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.